This episode of Indie Film Weekly is sponsored by Musicbed. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a no film school podcast. I'm Liz Nord. And I'm Eric Lures. It's April 19th, 2018, and on this week's show, the Great Can Netflix Debate, our Tribeca Film Festival preview, a wrap-up of the coolest gear from NAB that we didn't get to last week, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's show. We are back in Brooklyn, New York from NAB in Vegas. And as always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy working on films. John is not here this week. He's still recovering from that crazy, crazy week. I, I heard he he lost a lot of money at the casinos. <laughs> there was they you had know to what, keep Eric? him there because now he has to wash dishes and all this mea culpas that he listen, has to perform. Listen, listen. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, except for the 118 videos that John and his amazing team made in Vegas, which exactly. didn't stay there. They are now on NoFilmSchool.com. Absolutely. All of them. It's, it's uh, I think, a record number that were put out this year. Uh, so there's very extensive coverage. Yeah, and that doesn't even include the articles that were written sort of leading up to NAB. So for all of you gear and tech heads, this is like the time to visit the site and see everything new that's coming. These guys really rocked it this year. So thank you, John and the NAB team, including, of course, Charles Hain. We'll get to some more of his news from NAB in a minute. As mentioned, he's not here in the booth with us, but he'll still be putting this show together. So thanks, John. And... With that, I think we will jump right into it. So there's a lot of news pertaining to the Cannes Film Festival, uh, which makes sense as the festival is a mere three weeks away, actually. The in-competition titles were announced, and they include new works by Jean-Luc Godard, Spike Lee, Jafar Panahi, and, and many more, uh, all of which we have listed on the site. And while 18 titles in total will be in competition, you won't be seeing any from Netflix. We previously discussed this on a earlier episode, but we now have some more finalization. Uh, after Ken recently announced that the upcoming Netflix films would not be allowed to play in competition, there was a French industry outcry last year when Okja and the Meyerowitz stories were selected to play, which are both Netflix titles. Um, the distributor, led by Chief Content Officer Ted Sarandos, announced that Netflix would be bypassing the festival altogether rather than be penalized for its popular day-and-date streaming strategy. And I know that there are some French laws in place about when a film can have theatrical exhibition and then there's like a window where it has to wait to be placed on demand uh, outlets. So we don't have that here, but I believe there is a little bit more of a stricter French uh, rule in place. And so that led to Cannes feeling a lot of pushback and then just choosing to not put Netflix titles in competition. And Netflix responded by saying, you know what, please don't devalue us, I guess, and we're going to withhold from submitting any films to your festival. Yeah. So just to put that in a different way, you know, which is in French. Alors, uh, bonjour et... No, just kidding. I'm not going to... quoi? Voulez-vous... Anyway, I'm not going to do the next part in French, but just, just to put that in more layman's terms, as Eric already said, basically, Netflix submitted a bunch of films. Cannes said, we'd like these certain films in the festival, but we won't put them in competition. And Netflix responded by saying, well, then you can't have any of our films at all. Like, is that a fair yeah, summation? That's correct. Yeah. And, and there have been other titles that are playing in the festival that are not in competition but are like special screenings uh like uh solo a star wars story the, the coming out next month that will be premiering at can as just its own event uh not competing for the palm d'or but there are some of those as well but i guess netflix is not going that route either um and i don't, I don't know maybe they didn't need it they didn't feel they need that i think the reason we keep bringing up this story is because it really is just this microcosm or like symbol of the entire debate that's going on in our entire industry right now between, you know, not only just between streamers and sort of more traditional, I mean, you can't get more traditional than the Cannes Film Festival, more traditional cinephiles or cinema goers, but also even this question of what is a movie? We've had the same debate here in the U.S. for what qualifies for an Academy Award that we talked a lot about during award season. And that, that debate sort of rages on and on. I think that 
Netflix and can are like the, you know, symbols for each side of this debate in sort of like the largest context. And and as you all probably know by now, No Film School's founder, Ryan Koo, recently released a Netflix original film, Amateur, which we're doing a whole podcast miniseries about. Um, and so that means that Netflix financed the film and distributed the film. Um, and he's also doing press for the film. So he was just quoted in Business Insider on this very topic. He actually sent us his original statement beyond just what was printed. The question in Ryan's mind is, in the Netflix can debate, who is really championing and bolstering independent film? So Ryan says, on one hand, you have Netflix, who's giving opportunities to independent filmmakers like Ryan to actually make a movie in the first place, from financing all the way to worldwide distrib distribution. He goes on to say that this is an absolute game changer that will lead to many others, just like Ryan, having an opportunity to tell their story, express themselves, and reach a worldwide audience. Now Ryan says on the other side you have can taking a more restrictive view of what is or is not worthy of being in competition during a time in which film competes with the internet, social media, games, and increasingly new mediums like AR, VR, MR, or mixed reality. Ryan feels that restricting the definition of what is or isn't a competition film hurts not only the filmmakers who deserve to be there, regardless of their financing source and eventual distribution destination, it also hurts film as an art form because it narrows the definition of what's, quote, worthy of championing. Ultimately, the question Ryan asks is one that I think is worth debating. Netflix is being more inclusive and Cannes is being more restrictive. Which one of those approaches helps the medium survive and thrive? What do you think, Eric? Yeah, I think Netflix is, of course, the biggest player here because they know their release strategy and business model so well. Uh, it's a little bit different than, say, Amazon, where they'll, they will do a theatrical release and wait until it's released uh, digitally for Amazon Prime. Netflix, I think, is really one of the only day-and-date uh, distributors and you know production companies now. And it's, it's really, I don't know, I kind of go back and forth. Uh, I believe last year, they premiered the first two episodes of the Twin Peaks revival. Uh, again, not in competition, though. So I guess, like, they're, they've they found ways to incorporate... They mean can. I can, yeah. But Twin Peaks is a Netflix it's, it's show. It's a Showtime. A Showtime show, Showtime, okay. yeah. And that was, you know, not in competition. I think, again, it was a special screening, and that was their kind of way around it. Um, so... Cannes is very old school. They are one of the only festivals, you know, that haven't really embraced the whole TV section and you know mentioned vr ar like that's not a can thing it's very uh in some ways very archaic uh, mostly male filmmakers and very f filmmakers that have played there 10 15 20 times already uh so i expect them to be pretty sturdy so i don't know it's it's difficult i mean well, the question is like is it good or bad for filmmakers like do you think it serves filmmakers that can is so sort of what Ryan says restrictive? Yeah, anytime a f a film is disqualified by a festival, it's already kind of putting a you know disclaimer or or you know definition of what it is not. You know, so it cannot be this because it's premiering on this platform, and and then you are kind of saying it's a little, it's not like you know bad you know bad goods or anything like that. Uh, I think I think it's just you know difficult in that sense. Well, I'd like to say merci for your opinion, uh, and also, yeah, I I agree. I think you know I could I could sort of go either way with this one, but the the debate's definitely not going away. Mm -hmm. And I in some ways I respect Cannes like um, devotion to traditional film. And if you are a traditional filmmaker, you might really appreciate that in their own way. They're sort of trying to protect that medium and to say and, and to not have to put you in competition with a VR game design because really you're you're telling two totally different kinds of stories. Yeah. But on the other hand, I'm all for innovation in the industry and I think that not every story has to be told in the same way, yeah. and, you know, via the same traditional means. So so I'm not sure the answer, but I do think ultimately it's kind of the audience that loses out. Yeah. from these debates because either way they're being restricted from seeing stuff. Exactly. It's not about the films themselves necessarily. It's about the release strategy that Netflix gives them that is penalizing them in a way. And honestly, could you imagine being a filmmaker who has a Netflix original and knows that your film could have played at Cannes but that it doesn't because Netflix pulled it? Oof. Mm. Ouch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Let ouch. Sorry, Benji. That you know recently <laughs> premiered on Netflix. Not playing. Oh, you could get the golden, the palm. Oh, what is the award they give to dogs at Cannes? The the but golden. They bone? give a dog. They give an award to the dog. Uh, That's true. Actually, we talked about right? it last Remember year. Remember the dog from the artist Uggy? Like oh, he was not the golden God. dog. The golden. <laughs> Golden Bark. I think you're thinking of the Golden Bear at Berlin Eye. I know, but the the Palm the Palm de Bark. I don't. I, <laughs> damn. Okay. The so Palm I'll de look Wolf. This up. The Palm de Wolf. I'll look this up. But there is a dog <laughs> award, so maybe I'll go to bed. Which is funny because "oof" means egg in French, so it's the, the Palm de Egg, maybe. I can't. I'm becoming such a Francophile on this show. <laughs> I think you're becoming kind of a Frankenstein. It's creepy, you guys. You should see this. Anyway, I don't know where we're going, but. Uh, Moving on, I think. I think we'll Speaking just of other festival news. <laughs> I think we will. I think we will leave this debate for the moment, and yeah, talk about a festival right here in our own. I guess I would say front yard. Brooklyn's kind of the maybe the backyard. Yeah. To Manhattan, you could argue it either yeah, way. You have to go downtown to New York, you know. So is that like? Yeah, I guess that's front yard. Hmm. Well, either way, what we're talking about is. <laughs> The Tribeca Film Festival, which kicked off last night with a gala screening of Lisa DePolito's documentary Love Gilda about the beloved comedian Gilda Radner. I think it's the 17th edition of the festival. And uh, as we've pointed out before, it's one of New York's youngest film festivals. And yet it has really gained global status as the city's most highly regarded festival. You might argue that. You could say it's second to the venerable New York Film Festival. But one of the differences is that there are a lot more premieres at Tribeca. So I think for filmmakers, they might be gunning, especially younger filmmakers, might be gunning for a a Tribeca premiere. There are actually 76 world premieres in the feature film section alone this year, in part just because it happens much earlier in the year than uh, the New York Film Festival, which isn't until the fall, when many of the big festivals have sort of already run their course. Another thing that sets this festival apart, although it's becoming increasingly common at other festivals, is something that, as Eric pointed out, might not fly at Cannes. Tribeca has a whole bunch of sections that wouldn't fall into the traditional film category. They were one of the first, and I think still the best, to showcase interactive and immersive projects in what started as the Storyscape section and has since expanded to include a virtual arcade and 360 cinema, and they've now added a TV section and what they call a an NOW or now section for online work. So between all these sections, there's an impressive 222 projects representing 46 countries at the festival this year. And there's also 20 Tribeca talks with some really high profile guests. So among that huge program, I'm wondering, yeah, what you're looking for. Yeah, to. I will say I went to the virtual arcade, I believe, two years ago for Mr. Robot. I believe they had like a whole set up uh, for that maybe two or three years ago and it is literally like a virtual arcade I, I thought that was like a special name for something but there's a pinball there's you know bocce ball and things like that it was with a VR component to it as well so that's always interesting to check out yeah that was funny that was something a little bit more South by Southwest like where they sort of they were doing like a brand activation basically yeah and that was the only one that really was arcade like because I don't know if you've ever seen the show but part of it takes place in an old arcade yeah Yes. So the, it was very literally an arcade just really, for that specific But it's section. not. They <laughs> Though Damn they it. do call it the virtual arcade, I'm sorry to say there's not skee-ball every year. Usually oh. it's just. I, the one time I went, it was an actual arcade. <laughs> and now I'm thinking that you just go and play Pac-Man with a VR headset Which on. is so fun. But Ugh. actually, no, it's more like a, like 20 or so different stations set up with, with the VR headsets. And each one features like a different project. Gotcha. Um, but it's still really fun. Okay. Not well, as fun as virtual Pac-Man. I tell you. Um, so. So, yeah, but my most anticipated uh, in terms of the films would probably be The Fourth Estate by director Liz Garbus. Mm. It's, I believe it's a closing night film and it's a special gala screening. Um, documentaries that focus on the inside nuts and bolts of rigorous journalism are like catnip for me. Um, there was the, the page one the New York, inside the New York Times a few years ago. That was really cool. Uh, and, and one with unprecedented access only sweetens the deal. Uh, as I mentioned, Garbus is a two-time Academy Award nominee, and she returns with her latest nonfiction feature. And I think it couldn't be more timely, going behind the scenes of the New York Times coverage of Donald Trump's first year as president of the United States. Wow, they must have edited that really quickly. I guess, yeah, I guess, uh, what was his one year... January? Yeah. 
Yeah, that is true. Mm, impressive. Um, anyway. So perhaps you've heard uh, Trump isn't too big a fan of the gray lady and impartially covering someone who daily berates your employer on Twitter probably isn't the easiest job for reporters to carry out. So like, how did the New York Times respond when attacked and what did they really feel behind closed doors? You know, I think it's kind of interesting. How do you how do, how do you uh, impartially cover someone who is... <laughs> Does hate, not impartially that, cover you. That, yeah, this is not say the nicest things or, or think you're uh, worthwhile in any way, shape, or form. Uh, hopefully, this doc will make headlines. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, ding ding. Uh, anyway, yeah. I, yeah, for films, I would say for me, it's funny because I'm usually like our on our doc beat, but I chose a narrative this time. Um, although it's lo- a lot like a documentary of my own life. No, oh, no. my God. Please it's tell It's called disobedience. Oh. <laughs> Naughty. Anyway, um, so this film, um, I'm, I'm actually really excited about it. The director is, uh, I'm not probably going to say his name exactly right, but Sebastian Lelio, who just won the Foreign Language Oscar um, last month for uh, A Fantastic Woman, which we talked about on the show. And um, I think it's going to be a really, really interesting film. It's a... Uh, it's got this interesting subject matter, which if you know anything about my career, I've done a lot of work um, in the in Israel and in various Jewish communities, uh, including most recently the kind of ultra-Orthodox community. And in this movie, and that's documentary work, but in this movie it's a fictional story um, about a secret lesbian love affair between two Orthodox Jewish women. So they are played by um, Rachel Weisz, who I love, and who's also a producer on the film, and Rachel McAdams, who I don't believe is a Jewess, but, you know. I, don't, I, I just realized that they're, they're both Rachels. Yeah, which is a classical Jewish name. Oh. Biblical okay. and shit. Anyway, so, you know, you know, on the, on the surface, just like those two making out, like, that's cool. Um, but it also has this stellar team. Again, Seb- Sebastian Lelio. Um, the screenwriter is Rebecca Lankowitz, also, I imagine, a Jewess. Um, she co-wrote the screenplay for Ida, which won the same foreign language Oscar that Lelio just won. Um, also, it's shot by the cinematographer called Danny Cohen, who he's shot all kinds of things. But he I think he specializes in these kind of intimate dramas um, like he shot The Danish Girl. He shot Room, um, which you saw and you said was very good. looked yeah. really good. Yeah. Excellent. So, you know, that whole team together, it just it bodes really well for this film. I'm excited to see it. I got to ask you, I was just thinking of other Orthodox women who do something bad undercover or, you know, kind of do something out of uh, their... Yeah, what do you mean religious. bad? Not bad. I don't mean bad. I mean outside of their religious... Uh, Frowned upon in their communities. Thank you. Thank you. And I was... have You, you know what I have never seen? Uh, Yentl. Oh my god! I know. I, and I've always wanted to see it, and I think it was something about like three hours. But that has been on my list to watch for the longest time. That's such a classic. We should have like a little no film school movie night, and I'll I'll make um, knishes live and... commentary. Yeah, <laughs> we'll do a three MST, hour commentary MST track for two K three thousand. Was it Mystery Science Theater? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we have Amy Irving and and Babs come by, but and... with a Yiddish accent. Oh, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Papa, can you hear this? Oh my god. Uh, okay, I mean, I know the songs. I just haven't seen the movie. Uh, okay, I feel I feel like my job this episode is to just reel us back in. So reeling us back in. What what about talks or you know, anything you're looking forward to? Yeah. So for talks, uh, there's one with the director and screenwriter Nancy Myers, who has. Pretty uh, prosperous career. Sometimes you may get one of her titles confused with a Nora Ephron film, as I've I've gotten them kind of mixed, and they've had some of the same actors. I totally have done that, that too. Nature. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but she was an Oscar-nominated screenwriter for Private Benjamin in 1983. Uh, she wrote the two Father of the Bride remakes with Steve Martin, which I grew up with and loved. Uh, Baby Boom, starring Diane Keaton, and apparently, uh, in looking her IMDb page up. She also wrote the television series spinoffs for Baby Boom and Private Benjamin as well. I didn't know those were a thing, but I'm going to YouTube them later. Um, she also, in terms of feature films, directed Something's Gotta Give, uh, The Intern, starring Tribeca founder Robert De Niro, It's Complicated, What Women Want, The the Parent Trap remake. That wow, was really? Like, a lot of stuff. Covering Lindsay Lohan, yeah. Um, and most recently, the Walmart Super Bowl short featuring an extremely peppy Hans Zimmer. Uh, <laughs> So, you know, I think that her career um, has always been seen as somewhat mainstream and 
romantic comedy, great for your parents, blockbusters. Um, but I think that the form in her career is, has really gone uh, for such a long time that I'm kind of interesting to kind of hear what she has to say and reflect on because she really, I don't think, has had much of a chance to say it. And what about yourself? What are you talk-wise, panel-wise interested in? Well, I think it's a really a good lineup this year. Um, and for those of you in town, I definitely recommend looking at their talk section. It's a little confusing to get around the website, but this is where, if you're wanting to learn about making films, like they have some top-notch, you know, people come and talk about the craft specifically. Mine is less uh, less about the craft this year. Last year, I went to this amazing um, cinematographer talk with Ellen Curris, which I wrote up on the site, uh, and I'll put a link to in the podcast post, actually. But this year, it's more like for um, I'm excited, like because I personally, you know, have an interest. Um, there's a documentary called Freaks and Geeks: The Documentary. Mm. And it is not about circuses. It's about the, <laughs> that TV show. Yeah, it's about the show that that um, late '90s TV show. I don't know if you guys remember it. It only aired for one year, from 1999 to 2000, but it was super, super influential. Mm-hmm. Like the comedy and and producing and screenwriting careers of all these people that you know now, um, James Franco and uh, Seth Rogen, Seth Rogen, Jason Segel. They yeah, they yeah. all were launched from this show and I loved it at the time and was so sad when it went off the air and apparently I'm not the only one because now there's an entire documentary and then afterwards they're doing a talk with the director of the documentary whose name is Brent Hodge and the creator of Freaks and Geeks Paul Feig so yeah I'm excited to check that out and I'll write it up too on uh, nofilmschool.com so not only will we be covering the festival with many filmmaker interviews and write-ups over the next couple of weeks, but we're also co-hosting a party with our friends at Kit Split and DC TV next Friday night, the 27th. So if you're in New York, keep an eye on our Twitter for how to RSVP, and I hope we'll see you there. Do I get invited? Everyone but Eric. Please okay. keep your eyes on Twitter. <laughs> Tweet at me, boo. <laughs> Tweet at me, boo. For those of you who don't know, Eric actually manages our Twitter. So, so literally, <laughs> unfortunately, at me, boo, we're going to have to uh, let him know about the party. Uh, let's do it. They just don't give me the address. Unfortunately, uh, <laughs> uh, just to reflect for a moment, the great director in Czechoslovakia-born Milos Forman passed away this past Friday at the age of 86. Uh, Scout DeFoya wrote an excellent remembrance of the director for us this week that you should definitely check out. We will link to that. Uh, Of course, you know the name Milos Forman. Throughout his career, he was the recipient of three Oscar nominations for Best Director, winning for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Amadeus. He won two prizes from the Berlin International Film Festival for directing The People vs. Larry Flint and Man on the Moon, uh, and a Cannes Jury Prize in 1971 for his Buck Henry starring Taking Off. I feel like, you know, he's made so many influential and impactful films over four or five decades. And I feel like everyone kind of has a favorite Milos Forman film. Growing up, I watched Amadeus in school a lot, uh, which I came to appreciate it a little bit later, but I can still remember F. Murray Abraham's caked up old man Salieri face uh, quite vividly. And, you know, Cuckoo's Nest is also all time great. He directed Hair, the Broadway musical turned into a film. Uh, ragtime about early uh, 20th century in America, and he had a really prosperous career. Yeah, I actually learned so much from Scout's uh, remembrance of him. It really goes in depth on sort of his own influences and, you know, the influence that growing up in Czechoslovakia and sort of helping to develop the Czech new wave scene, you know, right under the nose of kind of very restrictive regimes Um how those influenced his films and ultimately influenced American film at large. He was one of those names that I've known throughout my you know, life and had seen several of his films, but it's like when they pass away and you see that breadth of work, it's, it's so shocking and impressive how much one creative work one person was able to put out in their lifetime. Absolutely. And as you, as you mentioned, uh, there is when someone does pass away and you kind of look at those titles, you can start to see those narrative themes connecting and how the director is kind of bringing that each time in terms of biopics, flawed male character leads and things of that nature. Yeah. So rest in peace, Milos, and thank you for all the work. Now for some gear and tech news. So this is Charles Hain here with Gear News, April 19th, 2018. Uh, Finally recovered from NAB. 
another NAB done and gone this year. Uh, it's always such a crazy high. If you haven't gone, I really want to reiterate again, you should totally go. Yes, it's a way to learn about new gear, but you can learn about new gear, new gear here and lots of other places. But most importantly, it's like the primary driving networking arena for the nerds of the world. So like Sundance and film festivals are great for like if you're a publicist or if you're a director or if you're a producer or an actor, but like if you're a director who's also a nerd or a DP or a postie in any arena, NAB is the primary running into people. I ran into a client I hadn't talked to in nine years who'd moved on like three times from their last, from the job where I met them. And uh, we were just walking down the aisle and I was like, hey, Robbie, is it going to lead to more work? Who knows? It was nice to see him and maybe it'll lead to cool work. Uh, we did a job way back in 2009 together where the composite, uh, the green screen composite was done by a video game engine in a phone, which was like super cutting edge in 2009. Um, so the first year you go. You'll just wander around to booths and talk to the sales reps and, and see cool stuff, and maybe you will learn about something to buy, or maybe you'll just wander around. But then if you keep going year after year, you're going to run into more and more people you knew that you met at last year's NAB. You'll go to the things at night. Really, I can't recommend enough. Start going to NAB when you can. Um, and if you see the No Film School team, say hello. Uh, we are on a pretty aggressive – we try and do – Two interviews per hour is our schedule, so we might not, like, stop and chat for very long, but totally say hi. We love seeing fans and listeners, and uh, we would love to meet you if you are there. So we talked about NAB a little bit last week. In fact, I think we had, like, an, a whole NAB podcast last week, but now we've slept, we've showered, we've, we've thought a little bit, we've read some more websites, and here are some of the standout products that we saw that are totally legit. First up... Atomos and ProRes Raw. So Atomos are in this interesting position. They don't make their own camera, so they've never really had their own RAW format that they had to promote, unlike Airy or Red, who have their own RAW formats. But they have to work with every single camera manufacturer, and ideally, we're really getting to the point where they need some sort of RAW workflow solution, but if they came out with one on their own, it would be a real uphill battle, I think, to fight for its adaptation. I mean, there are already a bunch of raw workflow solutions. There's already Cinema DNG, which is sort of becoming the, like a default indie, not tied to a specific camera format. But those files are pretty big in Cinema DNG. So it's interesting that, and it made a lot of sense that Atomos is the first big vendor out of the gate, along with DJI, but so far only for uh, products that fly, um, providing a solution for capturing ProRes RAW. And it was announced like simultaneously with the Apple announcement. And beyond that, it's in the ad. Like the initial launch ads from Apple have Atomos devices in them, which is something you don't see a whole lot of from Apple. So I think that tells us a lot that Atomos was heavily involved in developing this, in sort of getting it to be a platform. And I think it's a really smart move for Atomos because it puts it in a position where they can support the what will likely become the prominent sort of raw format uh, that's not tied to a specific camera body. Um, and that's really cool. Um, in order to take all that sensor data and wrap it into the ProRes codec, I think th that a lot of like work was probably involved between DJI Atomos and Apple sort of to develop it and make sure there was a workflow. And then I definitely... After NAB, I think that, like, DJI had a lot of stuff they were talking about, at, which is all very cool, and I can't wait to play with the master reels in the field. But uh, Atomos, in addition to the 5-inch Ninja, which does look legit pretty cool, um, they're really pushing ProRes RAW, and I think they're going to be one of the primary pro proponents of ProRes RAW. And I actually, it was really interesting, like, they were at NAB being like, camera manufacturers, we can do HDMI ProRes RAW if you'll put RAW out your HDMI, which none of the camera manufacturers are doing yet, but Atomos was really pushing. So Apple doesn't tend to push. They're not, like, pushers. They tend to be like, hey, we make cool stuff. Do you like it or not? Like, they're very um, the cool kid. Um, and I think Atomos is going to be a real pro – it seems like Atomos is going to be uh, one of the main people – being like, we don't care if we look cool or not. We're going to tell you what we want. We want you to give us RAW out of HDMI. So uh, if there is an A7S 3 coming sometime soon, which the rumor on the street is that they're not going to do that. 
they think the a7 III is good enough. Um, I think an a7S III that had like raw out over the HDMI would be murderously good. Um, the only question I still have is what do we call it? So like with ProRes 4444, that was always so awkward that the kids all call it Quattro. Like, hey, is this in Quattro? Oh, yeah, this is in Quattro. Oh, we'll be master in Quattro. Um, is this going to be ProRes Raw? Is it going to be PR Raw? PRR? I'm personally voting for ProRes Squared, uh, which we would write PR2, but we are very open to hearing what you guys think will become the way we talk about this in the future. Let us know in the comments. Uh, next up, Small HD is continuing their collaboration with Teradek of smooshing together receivers and monitors and they've extended it to their focus line of products. Now, we were super excited a few months ago when the 703 Bolt came out. But frankly, it's a bit pricey. It's totally exciting, but it's $3,000. Um, for what it offers, that's a great deal. It's like a Sidekick 2 receiver built in, beautifully integrated with a monitor that gives you all the small HD features. And it's 3,500 3, nits, so you can see it. Like, we were shooting it in the Vegas, like, high noon sun in Vegas. And you could totally see the monitor. It was great with no sunshade. But it's pricey. So for NEB, they rolled out a line of focus bolts. Uh, the focus monitor line is their smaller. It's like five inches instead of seven inches. And it has this feature, which I love, which is like you mount the battery to the monitor. And then there's power out to power your camera, which is great because if you're using any kind of camera, like most cameras where the battery's on the bottom, you no longer have to like take the camera off the tripod to swap the battery out. And then it's one battery you have to worry about. Whereas with a lot of other solutions, you're like worried about your monitor battery and your camera battery. Um, the Focus, you have the one battery in the monitor and it powers your camera. And it's like a great little nifty system to give you a five inch monitor to see your images. The Focus Bolt takes this all a step further combining the monitor with wireless transmitters and receivers. So now, let's say you're out there on a shoot with like an A7S III or my beloved X-T2 or the X-H1, instead of bringing up a focusing monitor for the AC and then a wireless transmitter for Video Village or the director, you get both of those things in one handy little unit, and that little unit off the same battery also powers your camera, making your life way simpler on set. Uh, at NEB, they showed off an integration with their RT motion uh, focus controllers, the Teradek RT uh, focus control unit. So if you mount one of these bolt receivers, the focus bolt receivers, to the top of your little follow focus unit, it's going to bring up like lens data showing you like on your focusing screen. So you can see the image and if it's focusing and you'll also see like a little focus scale. It's a super cool integration with the RT system. And it's going to make your life easier, and it's going to make nailing really difficult-to-focus shots easier. It's super cool. The full set, which is like two little monitors, one of which is a transmitter and one of which is a receiver, is like 2500 bucks, which is actually a really great deal. I know it seems pricey, but for everything you're getting, to have like a focus monitor on the camera and a focus receiver on your follow-focus unit, uh, it's super cool. It's a great deal. We are a fan of what that collaboration is doing between Small HD working with Teradek, and we're excited to see more stuff roll out. Next up, uh, for the posties, we saw a very cool demo from Boris of their new Continuum Particle effects. Uh, a lot of the same effects we know, but the crazy thing about it was watching everything run in real time in After Effects. It kind of blew my mind. So for the last decade or so, there was this big divide. You either went for like a pricey thing like Flame if you wanted real-time effects. Like the client's going to be in the room and they don't want to wait on renders and they want to be like, hey, have the explosion over here, have it over there. That's Flame. But if you didn't mind waiting on a render, if you're like, oh, I'm going to like do this and look at it at 8th res and then like watch a render to see how it looks, you would do a more affordable platform like After Effects. But with this new revision to Continuum, which I think is coming out this summer, Boris has really optimized their plugin and GPU and how they work together to make it powerful enough that you can pile on all these complicated particle effects like fire and smoke and like flashes and it and it just plays. And then you like move it around to somewhere else in the frame and you don't have to wait for a re-render. It just plays. It's insane. It's super exciting. If I were Flame, I might be a little worried. Except, frankly, Flame should have been worried for the last 10 years, and yet they're still super dominant in the commercial world. So I think Flame will probably be fine. But for the rest of us, it's going to be crazy fun to do these kind of VFX a little bit faster. 
last up, and we're doing four because it's the week after NAB and there's just too much to talk about. The jellyfish from Luma Forge is so cool, we just had to talk about it. Uh, in fact, we made a video about it, and back in the edit room, our editors saw it in the video and were like, holy cow, we need that. Basically, it's a single-stop shared media storage solution. Usually, when your like, post house or your production company has grown to the point where you want to do star- shared storage, you like reach out to some vendors and you get this like big, long, complicated, multi-page PDF bid with like arrayed and switches and cables and controller cards and interfaces and all sorts of stuff that like, I'm a nerd and I find myself Googling half the things on the bid and trying to figure out why it's going to be like $80,000. The jellyfish rolls it all out into like one unit. And it's like one box, and it's like one light item on the bid that you understand. And it has 10 gig Ethernet built in. And they are working with another vendor who's delivering these 10 gig Thunderbolt 3 cards that are like 200 bucks a pop. And they use the same interface as the iMac Pro's 10 gig cards. So Mac OS natively recognizes it if you just plug it in. So you've got $200. Uh, 10 gig cards for a laptop, like a a new Mac Pro. You've got 10 gig built into your new iMac Pros. So we're really living in this world where like 10 gig is finally within like affordability. And on top of that, this film friendly, this field friendly unit, it even has like a handle on top. And all of a sudden you can like roll up on set and you can get four people picture editing off the same media hard drive. Maybe you've got like one person downloading and prepping while someone else does edit, while someone else does color, all working off the same shared media in a box that you can just bring with you in a Pelican. Uh, It serves up like four streams of 4K ProRes over each 10 gig connection. You can get a bunch of edits put together. They make like a big version for offices that's still like one unit you plug and play. Uh, the jellyfish is super cool. You should totally take a look at Luma Forge. They're doing a bunch of stuff. Uh, check it out. Just like scouting, filming, and editing, having great music should make your film better instead of being a roadblock. Musicbed is dedicated to making that a reality. That's why they've completely rebuilt their platform of over 650 world-class artists and composers with brand new features, workflows, and an easy checkout process. Want to exclude holiday songs from your search in July? Go for it. Need a folk song that has guitar but no banjos at 120 beats per minute? No problem. With advanced search filters like include and exclude, beats per minute, key, song build, and more, finding the perfect song has never been easier or faster. Even better, Musicbed has offered a 20% off your next on-site license at musicbed.com to know film school readers. All you have to do is use the coupon code IndieFilmWeekly20. That's IndieFilmWeekly and the number 20. Learn more at musicbed.com slash new. Hey, and now I'm back with the Ask No Film School this question this week. Matthew Williams asks, I'm a sound designer, sound recordist, who has worked on a few short films, and now I need to put together a show reel. Anyone got any advice on putting together a show reel targeted at sound? So, Matthew, that is a great question. And if you ask any of my students, I'm sure they'll all tell you I have a ton of opinions on reels. So the trick with a reel is to always remember that it's not for other experts. It's for non-experts. So meaning, like, for instance, I watch DP reels all the time that are clearly targeted at other DPs. There's some, like, tricky, difficult, nearly impossible shot, and it goes on for, like, 70 seconds, and there's all these, like, complicated moves, and it's like you're sitting there, and if you're a DP, you're like, oh, that was really hard and impressive. But then, like, the acting is bad and there's no story, so it's kind of boring if you're not interested in the technical part. And directors and producers who are who you want to impress with your reel might not know enough about cinematography to know how hard that shot was. They're just going to notice that the acting was bad and the story was boring, and that will translate into them judging your work more harshly. Now, this isn't fair. It's, like, not. The cinematography reel should be judged on cinematography. A sound design reel should be judged on sound design. But if you're not an expert in sound design or cinematography, you might not know what to look for for judging, and everyone judges things poorly if it's got, like, bad acting or no story. So as you work on your reel, you need to think about not just where you did really nice sound design work, but also where you did nice sound design work on footage that is nicely shot and has good acting and, if possible, has famous people in it. I can't tell you the number of times I've seen, like, sound designer reels where, like, the footage was not good 
It was poorly exposed and the acting was bad. And it's really hard to pay attention to how good the sound design is in that experience. I've also seen work where the acting was so good and it was famous people in it and, like, the sound designer didn't do a bunch, but they did enough to, like, help tell the story and build the moment. And I think that's, frankly, way more evocative for directors and producers because one thing a reel is supposed to do is supposed to show, I've worked on good things. You're making good things. You should hire me. And a lot of times the people looking at it can't always tell what makes good sound design. On top of that, my general advice is a reel should start with 10 to 15 seconds of sizzle, like flashy moments with sound design, like a motion graphic section where like titles are flying in and you've built good noises for those titles, like those kind of things. And then 30 to 45 second chunks from projects, a chunk from a scene, a chunk from a commercial, chunks. Keep your total reel under three minutes. No one's going to watch a 10-minute reel. In fact, when you open a 10-minute reel on Vimeo, you're like, ugh. Because remember, a lot of times when people are hiring, they have like 15 reels to watch. So you want to make an amazing three minutes that makes them want to see more of your work. And then they might go to your site and watch a complete short or a complete TV episode or a complete feature before they hire you. But the reel is an advertisement to watch more work. You're not trying to stuff everything you've ever done into the reel. You're trying to entice people into making them watch other things you've done. There should never be a single bad thing on your reel. Not a one. Nothing. If you're wondering about a moment, take it out. Every single thing on your reel you need to be 100% confident in. So that's all my advice for a designer. Uh, for a sound recordist, first off, it should be a separate reel. It, like We hire them separately. We think about them separately. I know a lot of people do both. But you're hired at different times, often months apart, so it should be separate things. And honestly, that's a really tough one. I don't know how you'd do a sound recorder's reel. Sound recorders are almost always hired on personal recommendations. You ask other producers and directors, hey, who have you worked with who was good? Um, not that you couldn't build a good one, but I've never really watched sound recorder's reels, and I'm not really sure how you would demonstrate it. So that, that's tricky. Not impossible. Maybe someone in the comments will have a better idea. Um, all right. Well, that is all for Asking a Film School this week. Good luck. Send us your reel when it's all done. Uh, I'm very curious to see how it turns out. And now for some movie openings of the week. As mentioned in my trailer watch post uh, two weeks ago, every few years, Spike Lee will take a momentary break from directing his celebrated narrative features to turn his camera toward nonfiction projects, sports docs, music videos, uh, and in very rare instances, live stage plays. Uh, his latest, which premiered at Sundance earlier this year, will premiere on Amazon Prime this Friday, April 20th, with his film adaptation of Pass Over, which is a filming of a Steppenwolf Theater Company production in Chicago of an Antoinette Nwandu play. The film follows two men on a street corner who dream of a better life, where they're not constantly confronted by harassing police officers, to pass over to a better way of living. The story appears like a cross between Samuel Beckett and, well, Spike Lee, as it drifts through fantastical situations and the unfortunately very real horrors of police brutality. So I'm very much looking forward to this. It'll be on Amazon tomorrow, uh, and it's a play I've wanted to see, and it's directed by Spike Lee, so it's got a lot of good people working behind it as well. Not going to lie, I was really excited to see um, Spike Lee's take on a Passover Seder. So I'm yeah. like a little disappointed to hear that this is just about a play, but it sounds cool. But he's in the running to remake Yentl. Like I just <laughs> I just saw that on, on the news the other day. Oy. Uh, also opening this Friday is in, in theaters is Intimidation Girl from director Natasha Kermani, who is a fellow Film Fatale member. Uh, Imitation Girl is a sci-fi drama that debuted at last year's Cinequest Film Festival, and this is a very interesting synopsis. And Wait, this... she's a fellow Film Fatale member with you? You don't look like a Film Fatale. Uh, listen, I, I pay all the entry fees, and I pay my uh, annual uh, my annual fees as well. You uh, know, as long as you identify as female, it's fine. It's The check clears. A mysterious young woman materializes in the middle of the Southwest Desert, where each step teaches her about her new world and her new body. As she assumes a new life, she discovers she has a twin with whom she shares more than just an outward appearance. Whoa. I mean, I I have not seen Imitation Girl, but man, like this is this is the greatest synopsis, at least of the year. I won't I won't do too hyperbole. 
But uh, it sounds pretty far out, and it's got some really a great poster. Um, it sounds pretty far out, and it's got a really great poster. And it's got a really great poster. <laughs> See, no, but I, I was being invitation girl. Uh, oh, oh <laughs> my God, you're my twin? But I realize we have more than just an outward appearance. <laughs> We're oh. both film photos. Oh, goodness gracious. All right, there's, maybe, it's a, maybe it's a doc. Uh, no, it's, it's a narrative. <laughs> just checking. I hope you'll all check out the story of our lives, Imitation Girl. Exactly. Um, and we're living in a material world. So also opening theatric. <laughs> what? I thought Imitation Girl, Material Girl, Madonna. Okay. Know. Sorry. Also opening this Friday is The Devil and Father Amorth uh, from Academy Award winning director William Friedkin. He of the French Connection and the Exorcist fame comes a documentary that follows real life you know, I say that kind of in quotes, but, you know, who knows? Real-life exorcisms, specifically those performed by the now recently deceased Father Amorth of the Diocese of Rome. Filmed in 2016, Friedkin met with the priest as he performed exorcisms in Italy, very much like those seen in Friedkin's fiction 1973 classic film The Exorcist. Known as the Dean of Exorcists, Friedkin receives permission to attend and film Father Amorth's ninth exorcism on an Italian woman who has been experiencing troubling fits and behavioral changes that psychiatry could not fix. The documentary opens in limited release tomorrow and seems creepy, weird, odd, unsettling. You know, sign me up. Perhaps it'll even make your head spin. I didn't want to do it, <laughs> but I had to do it. Uh, it's just cool that he's going back to the exorcism realm. It's a documentary capturing some some real ones. You know, it can kind of go. Sounds fascinating. Either way, definitely. Uh, and last, which is currently in theaters, is The Rider, premiering at last year's Cannes Film Festival. Director Chloe Zhao's second feature has been one of the most critically acclaimed films on the festival circuit over the past 10 months since it premiered. Nominated for five Independent Spirit Awards, including Best Director and Best Feature, the writer takes place in South Dakota's Sioux community, and the location is somewhat similar to Zhao's previous feature, Songs My Brothers Taught Me, which was set on South Dakota's Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. After suffering a near-fatal head injury, a young cowboy undertakes a search for new identity and what it means to be a man in the heartland of America. Uh, Emily interviewed Zhao at Cannes last year about the lessons she learned the hard way from her first feature and why she thinks indies should be made with commercial money. Uh, and they get into a lot more as well. I actually have one more to add. Uh, the movie The Judge is as having a national theatrical rollout in the U.S. throughout April and May. It actually opened in New York last Friday, but it's currently in its national rollout and opening in L.A. this Friday, the 20th. Um, it's a film that just won a documentary feature award at the San Francisco International Film Festival earlier this week. And again, it's called The Judge. And it's a fascinating film by Erica Kahn about the first woman judge to be appointed to the Middle East's Sharia law courts. So her name's Judge Hulud, and she is an absolutely captivating character. And part of what's so interesting about it is that Kahn got incredible access to filming in her home and offices and courtrooms in Palestine. And I just guarantee this is a glimpse of the region that you've never seen on film before, even though, you know, Israel and Palestine in the Middle East is, is well covered in the media. Uh, I interviewed Erica, the film's director, when it screened back at Doc NYC as part of a really great podcast roundtable called How Do You Know If One Character Can Carry Your Whole Movie? And she had particularly fascinating behind the scenes stories of getting access and what can be a fairly close society. Take a listen to the podcast and then check out the film. And now for some upcoming grant and opportunity deadlines. I'm really excited to talk about this first one because I think it's a really cool and unique concept. And I also happen to be one of the judges. And it is uh, Studio Fest, which has an early deadline of April 22nd. So Studio Fest is a new organization that's looking to actually fund first-time feature filmmakers. So if you've made a short or written a screenplay, you can submit them for consideration to Studio Fest. Then, if you're one of five short-form filmmakers or five feature-length scriptwriters selected as finalists, so there are 10 total finalists, you get to attend the film festival in September in a beautiful Catskills town and hang out with me and the other judges and mentors for the weekend. And then at the end of the weekend, one director and one screenwriter will be given the opportunity to partner with Studio Fest to embark on the making of your first film. And it's really cool because uh, you'll also get a budget between thirty dollars and $50,000. 
So anyone from any country can enter as long as you're 18 or older. Your submissions are in English or with English subtitles. For shorts, of course, the scripts have to be in English. And you have not yet made a feature film. And the best part is they've actually offered a 25% off for No Film School listeners who enter the code STUDIOFESTNFS on Without a Box and Film Freeway. So that's Studio Fest NFS, like No Film School. And the early deadline is April 22nd. We will link to that, and I'll remind you of the code in our uh, podcast post. Also, here's a really cool opportunity. If you're working on a short documentary about an urgent topic that can be completed and distributed quickly, Fledgling's Special Fund for Rapid Story Development provides grants ranging from $2,500 to $10,000 to support such projects. According to their site, priority will be given to projects that have a plan to distribute the work in ways that deepen the debate around our most critical social issues. The grant is open to projects at all stages, so production, post-production, distribution, and even outreach. But again, they're really looking for projects that are well-positioned to make an impact quickly. You don't have to be a U.S.-based filmmaker to apply, but the funders emphasize their interest in projects that respond in real time to U.S. social and political changes that affect vulnerable populations in the U.S. and abroad. And all applicants must have a 501c3 fiscal sponsor based in the U.S., even if you yourself are not based in the U.S. So due to, you know, the nature of this grant and the fact that it's about responding quickly, it's on a rolling deadline. And you can apply whenever uh, one of these opportunities is um, in front of you. And in upcoming festival deadlines, with a regular deadline of this coming Monday, April 23rd, is the Hamptons International Film Festival, which takes place the first week of October. Or as we call it around here, HIF. HIF. I, I tell you, it's it's a really good anagram. They have a new uh, tagline, get a whiff of HIF. Oh, jeez. Oh, well, then you have to attend this just to smell it for yourself. <laughs> uh, with four competitive categories in narrative feature, documentary feature, narrative short film, and documentary short film, and programs in seven non-competitive categories, the Hamptons International Film Festival seeks diverse films made by filmmakers who traverse the globe in order to tell their stories through different cultural styles and experiences. The winners of two of HIF's short film competition programs, Best Narrative Short and Best Documentary Short, will automatically qualify for the Academy Awards without a standard theatrical run, provided they meet all other Academy requirements. I've, I've never been to HIF, actually, but it sounds really great. It looks beautiful. Also, with a regular deadline of next Thursday, April 26th, is Fantastic Fest. Fantastic Fest, which is based in Austin, Texas, and it's Alamo Draft House run. All the screenings take place at the Alamo South Lamar. Uh, is the largest genre film festival in the U.S., specializing in horror, fantasy, sci-fi, action, and just plain fantastic movies from all around the world. Uh, from what I've heard, it's an insane festival with insane movies. They have had boxing matches take place there. They've had debates. They do podcasts. It's really a fun couple of days, so so I'm told. Uh, this year's edition runs from September 20th through September 27th, and if you have something pretty crazy or wacky, definitely think about applying uh, to Fantastic Fest. You'll have a great experience. Fantastic. So now comes my favorite section, weekly words of get a whiff of weekly wisdom. <laughs> oh. Anyway, Weekly words of wisdom. Eric, I think you have some this week. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to quote someone. My own words of wisdom are are, are not up to par. Uh, In a post up this week from director Luke Corum titled Five Essential Tips for Crafting the Narrative in Your Documentary, Corum, who recently directed the hit documentary Delt, uh, which premiered at South by Southwest last year. And is on Hulu and on demand now. It is. Yes, indeed. Uh, It's about one of the world's greatest card magicians, and he happens to be completely blind. Um, The director stressed why it's so important not to edit your own film. Corum says, don't edit your own film. You want to avoid at all costs editing your own documentary, especially the first rough cut. This is a point I failed to adhere to in my first film. Hiring an editor has so many benefits beyond just saving you time. If you are the director or producer, you are in the weeds. You have a pulse on the story, but oftentimes your vision is a bit skewed. A good documentary editor will find crucial moments and create brilliant scenes that you likely would not have rendered. Doc editors are like writers, so find a good one and it will elevate your film. Uh, He continues to go on about how he assembled his 
few rough cuts with a full-time editor, how they communicated via Google Hangouts because they lived in different cities, and how effective and productive of a process that was. Uh, so I do notice that there are some more recent documentaries that are edited by the director, and sometimes I do wonder uh, if that is the most beneficial to the final result of the film. And in his case, in his opinion, it definitely is not. You do need different eyes, another set of eyes to kind of take over a little bit. And it should be, as he stresses, if you can afford it, a full-time editor. Yeah, you're being very diplomatic, but I couldn't agree with him more. I think it's more often than not a set up for failure if you're editing your own doc, especially if it's a personal doc. Um, One way I would disagree with Luke, though, is that I think it's an awesome article. But in their case, I think he was saying you definitely want to bring an editor in at the rough cut stage. Whereas I feel like if you're trying to save some money, I could maybe, you know, you could maybe do the rough, the rough chopping up yourself, getting rid of anything that's just totally useless and then bring somebody on to sort of, you know, with a fresh set of eyes to help shape it. But either way, I think every documentary and every article, look, I'm a professional editor, not not a film editor, but you and I are editors here at No Film School, and I think we know very intimately how even the best writers and storytellers, you know, everybody needs an editor. I say it all the time. Absolutely. So thanks, Eric. Uh, speaking of words of wisdom, we often get advice about finding inspiration, and the filmmakers we interview seem to generally come from two schools of thought. Either watch every movie ever made or skip movies and pay attention to other art or media or just things in the world. So for me, I fall somewhere in between, but I definitely personally like to sample kind of, you know, all kinds of creativity uh, in other fields. And I think, especially for docs, the world that I come from, you actually need to have some sense of what's going on in the real world if you're telling real world stories. It's kind of a no brainer. Um, I mention all this to say that this year's Pulitzer Prizes were announced earlier this week, and these are arguably America's most prestigious awards for journalism, literature and musical composition. And this year, one went to the New York Times and New Yorker reporters who broke the Weinstein scandal and probably changed our industry forever. So it's relevant to mention because of that. But I also bring it up, per my earlier point, if you want to learn from and get inspired by some of the finest storytellers from media outside of film, the Pulitzer winners list is a really good place to start. So I recommend checking it out. Definitely. Yeah. And if you go to the Pulitzer website as well, you can see who won in each category and then the other three nominees Uh, And you can see, actually, because in order to be nominated, you have to submit a certain amount of articles and things that or, you know, music or whatever, you know, that you've made. And you can actually see the samples that were submitted for their nomination for their award as well. Oh, that's really interesting. So you could go down a whole rabbit hole and kind of like follow someone's entire body of work. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's really cool. And you really will spend hours on the site if you check it out. Also, shout out to Kendrick Lamar, the first... Uh, rapper or even hip-hop artist to uh, win a Pulitzer this year. Absolutely. Speaking of brilliant and inspiring media, coming up on next Monday's interview podcast. Hey, what's so funny? This is our submission for our Pulitzer. We're (laughs) going to send in in this episode of the podcast first, you know. And so look for that winner's list next year. (laughs) (laughs) Anyhow, so... uh, Seriously, I have a great roundtable discussion coming up on Monday with three filmmakers who had short docs screening at South by Southwest last month, including Charlie Tyrrell, who won the festival's jury award for his wonderfully titled My Dead Dad's Porno Tapes, plus the filmmakers Mohammed Gorgistani and Leah Gallant. We talk about why this is a golden age for documentary shorts and how they got their projects made and how shorts can fit into your filmmaking career's kind of bigger picture, even if you've already worked on commercials or features. It's, it's going to be an interesting episode. Now, next Wednesday will be our fifth episode of our miniseries first feature about the making of Ryan Koo's Amateur, in which Ryan and I talk about casting, location scouting, and the other prep that leads up to production And on next Thursday's Indie Film Weekly, we'll let you know about everything we saw and heard and learned at the Tribeca Film Festival. Meanwhile, please uh, check out nofilmschool.com where you can read everything we talked about this week and new articles about the craft of filmmaking every single day. And please, uh, to get those shows that we just talked about, please subscribe to the No Film School podcast on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. It also helps us out an awful lot when you rate us. Well, when you give us good ratings anyway. So if you have a second to do that, uh, it means a lot. And of course, stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at Eric Lures. 
the missing John is at Jim. <laughs> uh, a little different when he's not here. <laughs> never mind. You'll never find him. <laughs> Just kidding. It's at Jim underscore J O N underscore Jim. Jim underscore John underscore Jim. 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 Go to the gym, John. Jim. Oh, yeah. J-I-M. Not J-Y-M. G-Y-M. Oh, God. I can't even find him on Twitter. He's on Twitter somewhere, just like the rest of us who are all on there together at No Film School. And we will see you next week. Au revoir. See you at the party. Au revoir.